questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings, I'm El Hostelrick. This week I'm taking some time off to spend with my family for the Christmas holiday. Before I get into tonight's classic episode, I wanted to share a few updates with you. First, I would like to apologize to anyone who tried to send messages through our website recently. Our website was attacked earlier this year, and as recently as a few weeks ago. While we were able to get it back up within 24 hours, we were unaware that the attackers had done something even more clever. They redirected our email traffic so that we didn't receive most of your messages. That is why you may not have received a response from our staff or myself directly recently. In addition, they used our domain to send millions of emails. Not yours, but this caused our email bill to skyrocket into the thousands. Because they sent these millions of emails elsewhere, many people who received them reported them as spam, resulting in us being blacklisted by many email and internet providers. The bottom line is that there is a concerted effort to silence Veritas. Every year, they intensify their efforts. If you don't receive your weekly newsletter, which is essentially the only message we send out once a week alerting you that there is a new episode available, it means that your internet or email service provider has blacklisted us. If you have listened to us over the years, you know that there's no reason for them to do so. We don't solicit or spam anyone. We simply announce, again, we only announce to our subscribers that a new interview is available. In addition to redirecting our email traffic and sending spam emails, the attackers also blocked our password retrieval system. While this has mostly been fixed, the blacklisting may still be causing issues. If you try to retrieve your login and don't receive it via email, that is why. Just send an email to our support group and they will send it to you manually. However, it's the festive season and I try to see the positive in everything. If this is happening, it's because Veritas is making an impact. And those of you who are on this journey with me know that. On a different note, in the past few months, I have been announcing that we will soon be offering guided meditations as part of your subscription. We finally have some already posted on our website. Some of you have already contacted me about them, and I'm glad to hear they're making a difference and you're enjoying them. I personally guide these meditations. Why did I choose to start with meditations about sleep? Because I know many people, including myself, have difficulty falling asleep. I used to have trouble falling asleep until I started meditating before going to bed. And I can attest that it has helped me overcome that. Guided meditations for sleep, they're important for our health because it helps us relax, reduce stress, and improve the quality of our sleep. It can also help us clear our minds, allowing us to drift off to sleep more easily. These meditations for sleep can also improve our overall mental and physical health, reduce anxiety and depression, and increase self-awareness and spiritual growth. Before I started meditating, I would only dream once in a blue moon. But since I started, I have vivid dreams almost every night, and sometimes multiple times per night. So try it and see the positive changes that can take place in your life. Let me know how it goes. I will be uploading more meditations periodically. This is something I have wanted to learn for decades, and I'm glad to be able to share with all of you. And since I don't get to do monologues very often, and many of you have asked me for my routines, 
I might as well share more with you since I receive the question all the time. Please note that I am not a physician, not a medical doctor, and I do not give medical advice. I can only share with you what I do to keep myself healthy, especially during these days. Every year, I add or modify some of the things I do, but I'll tell you what I've been consistently doing for the past few years or even the past few months. I got sick with the original, you know what, in the summer of 2020. Ever since I recovered from that, I haven't had a single cold. And I want to have a cold at least once a year because it's important to force your immune system to practice. Most of the time, we're just taking out the trash. But what if what we do keeps the trash away? And that's why some of us don't really get sick that often. Here's what I do daily in chronological order. First thing in the morning, I take pure organic sulfur. This increases energy levels by improving oxygen and nutrient delivery to cells. It detoxifies by removing toxins and heavy metals, which can improve overall health. It improves the appearance of the skin by supporting collagen production and reducing inflammation. That's the word, a big word, inflammation. It reduces joint pain and inflammation by providing necessary building blocks for cartilage and joint lubrication. It protects against liver damage. It improves digestion by promoting the production of beneficial bacteria in the gut. And as the late Patrick McGeehan used to tell me, sulfur makes people nicer. He used to say that if most people took sulfur, there wouldn't be any wars. Now, I could talk more about sulfur, but I have other things to share. I've recently started incorporating hibiscus tea into my routine, and I've been doing a lot of research on the benefits of hibiscus tea, and have noticed a difference after about a month of drinking it. One of the main benefits of hibiscus tea, other than being inexpensive, is that it significantly reduces blood pressure. If you take blood pressure medication, it's important to consult with your physician before adding hibiscus tea to your diet. In addition to reducing blood pressure, hibiscus tea also lowers LDL, bad cholesterol, and increases HDL, good cholesterol. I don't usually pay attention to cholesterol, but if you're interested in learning more about why, you can listen to my Sanitas interview about it. Hibiscus tea also promotes liver health by increasing the levels of liver enzymes. Another benefit that caught my attention is that hibiscus tea is high in antioxidants, which protect cells from oxidative damage and reduce inflammation. As a bonus, hibiscus tea can also help boost metabolism and suppress appetite, making it helpful for weight loss. It's also great for constipation and improving the health of the gastrointestinal system, as well as reducing the risk of colorectal cancer. In addition to drinking hibiscus tea, I also make a point to meditate for at least 30 minutes each morning. I use different meditation techniques depending on my goals for the day, and I will be creating some of these meditations for you periodically. Meditation helps increase, again, my focus and clarity throughout the day, makes me more aware of my thoughts, and also makes me more present in the moment. It also improves my mood and reduces stress. Finally, I highly recommend prioritizing sleep. One of the best things you can do for your overall health, and it's free, is to get a good night's sleep. If you have mobile devices, consider turning them off or putting them on airplane mode before bed. I also recommend turning off 
your Wi-Fi at night, if possible, as we are living in an electromagnetic soup and the increasing wavelengths from 4G to 5G to 6G and whatever comes in the future can have negative impacts on your health. If you want to learn more about this, I recommend checking out the book The Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Furstenberg, someone who I'm trying to get on the show. And more about health. A few months ago, I started wondering why I was so fit in the 1990s. Well, the reason, well, I was younger, but I used to eat once a day. I've never eaten breakfast. Although some people think it's the most important meal of the day, I do eat lunch and I vary what I eat. If you try this, you may experience cravings for a few days at night if you're used to having dinner. However, after a few days, these cravings should disappear. I eat close to lunchtime, and that's it. Although I may occasionally have a protein bar in the afternoon after I conduct an interview. As a food lover, I can't live like this all the time. So I make exceptions on the weekends, especially on Fridays and Saturdays. Basically, I'm rewarding myself. On those days, I eat whatever I want in the morning and the evening. My body is used to knowing that this is just temporary. I hardly drink alcohol, maybe socially once in a while. What does this do? It helps you lose weight. It reduces inflammation and allows your body to go into a regenerative process when it detects that you are fasting. If you don't sleep well or go to bed too late at night or go to bed with a full stomach, your body is using energy to break down and digest the food that you just ate. Your heart is pumping hard. And even though you fall asleep, your body is not really resting or regenerating. By being aware of this, you can help your body to rest or regenerate properly. And I think the real boogeyman is inflammation. Look at some of the health conditions that end in itis. Bronchitis, gastritis, laryngitis, tonsillitis, appendicitis, otitis, sinusitis, conjunctivitis, and here are two that we have seen and hearing about a lot lately, pericarditis and myocarditis. So find out what the culprit of that inflammation is, and most of your problems will go away. Drinking clean water is also very important. I try to avoid sugar. I allow myself to eat sugary foods on the weekends, but during the week, I try to avoid it. Sugar can affect the activity of your white blood cells, known as leukocytes, which help to fight off bacteria and other foreign invaders or antigens in the body. I once watched a video of a doctor, and I've said this story before, but it's worth mentioning again. He put blood samples, he took blood samples from two healthy subjects under a microscope. The white blood cells were active and working efficiently. Then the doctor gave the two subjects sugary drinks and waited a few minutes before taking new blood samples. When he looked at these samples under the microscope, the white blood cells had literally fallen asleep. This shows how sugar can impair the body's ability to fight off infections. It basically puts asleep your army that's supposed to be there defending you 24-7. If you're starting to get sick or have a, an existing illness, it's best to avoid sugar as much as possible. It's surprising to me when I go to a hospital and I see a patient that just came out of surgery eating sugary desserts. Sugar can hinder the healing process. 
Regular consumption of sugary foods can lead to an addiction similar to that of drugs or alcohol. When we eat or drink sugary foods, our brain releases dopamine, a neurotransmitter associated with pleasure, which can lead to cravings for more. This is partly because the bad bacteria in our microbiome, that's where 90% of your dopamine is produced in your microbiome. Well, the bad bacteria in our microbiome feed on sugar. Scientists conducted an addiction experiment with rats where they gave them sugar and cocaine, and they always chose sugar. I've gone back and forth with the following also, but many people talk about drinking alkaline this or that. Remember, homeostasis is the process by which an organism or cell maintains a constant internal environment by regulating its physiological processes. It's the process of keeping the body's internal environment in a steady state, despite changes in the external environment. Homeostasis is important in maintaining a stable and healthy body. The ideal pH level for the stomach should be around 1.5 to 3.5. If the pH is outside of this range, it can cause digestive discomfort and can lead to problems such as acid reflux and gastritis. Additionally, an unbalanced pH level can also make it easier for bacteria and other pathogens to survive in the stomach, leading to further health problems. The normal range for a healthy human's blood pH is between 7.35 and 7.45, which is slightly basic. We shouldn't confuse this, and that's why it's important not to try to make your stomach alkaline. And when it comes to supplements, I take multivitamins, vitamin C, vitamin D3, especially in the winter, and a few others. Occasionally, I take a brisk walk that can help you get more oxygen into your blood. Then as we approach the night, I boil water again for my second round of hibiscus tea of the day. Before going to sleep, I take magnesium, which made a huge difference when I found out about it 10 years ago. I also take turmeric. I know some people call it turmeric. Turmeric, which is a great supplement for reducing inflammation. And zinc. And also acai. Some people call it acai. I have a few others, but to keep this as short as possible, I'll leave it at that. And I forgot a couple of things. I forgot to mention something I do well in the office and while sleeping. Very important. I'm always connected to a grounding mat. Yes, grounding can reduce your body's voltage. Grounding is the process of connecting your body to the earth, often through direct contact with the ground, such as walking barefoot on grass, sitting on the beach sand, or sleeping on the ground. When you connect your body to the earth, it helps to reduce the buildup of static electricity in your body and the resulting electrical shock. Be careful when you donate your electrons if you see somebody who's sick in your office, for example, and you shake hands, you are donating your electrons. Think of it as your energy. If somebody's sick and has low energy, when you touch that person, you're balancing things out. It's like when you touch a doorknob in the winter and you get zapped, you're balancing things out. So be careful who you shake hands and who you touch. And I'm not talking about not touching your loved ones. Grounding can also help to reduce the electromagnetic radiation that is constantly emitted from electronic devices, which can have a negative effect on your health. In addition to grounding, 
I'm also subscribed to Focused Life Force Energy, FLFE. You, you hear that in every show. But I truly like it and enjoy it. You can find more information about this on our website. I find that when I'm meditating with a grounding bracelet and have FLFE activated, the meditation is so much more powerful. And at night, I meditate again. And I know I left a lot out, but I wanted to answer this question that I get all the time. People asking me, when are you going to just talk to the audience? Tell us what you do. And all the knowledge I've accumulated through the years. And I have to tell you, I may not have a PhD, nor am I interested in one. But I think in the almost 15 years that we've gone through this all together, you and I, I think the universe has given us multiple PhDs, don't you think? Oh, I almost forgot. I sleep on an inclined bed. Search for inclined bed therapy on our website for the interview. That's how the ancient ones used to sleep. Look at the Egyptian beds and see what it does for your muscles and beyond. I'm remembering a story from Andrew Fletcher during our interview about inclined bed therapy. He mentioned a young woman, 17 years old, who had cerebral palsy, never walked in her entire life. Well, the parents put her on an inclined bed, and in a few months, she not only was walking, she was running, and she developed muscular legs. That's all I'm going to say about inclined bed therapy. You can do your own research. You have the tools and the information right on our website. And moving on to tonight's episode, we've had a great roster of guests this year, and I'm already excited about what's coming next year. But tonight, we have an encore presentation. I chose my interview with Robert Emenegger from April 2009. That's uh, almost 14 years old. For a few reasons. First, I had no idea Bob had passed. Philip Mantle, a publisher in the UK, told me. I wanted to confirm, so I contacted Bob's daughter, who told me her dad passed away in 2020. Bob was a true gentleman and said a lot, and I mean a lot, in our interview. It was Grant Cameron who prepared me for that interview. And even after, Grant told me that he heard Bob say a few things he hadn't heard before about our interview. In fact, I believe Bob admitted to a few things and then denied them in other interviews. The alleged UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico is one of the most famous UFO stories in the world. It is said to have happened in 1971 and involved a UFO landing on the base runway with two aliens disembarking and meeting with representatives from the U.S. Air Force. Robert Emenegger, who was the producer of the controversial UFO documentary, UFOs Past, Present, and Future, from 1974, and narrated and hosted by Rod Serling, claimed that he had seen top-secret film footage of the incident. He also said that, according to witnesses, the UFO was met by a team of military personnel and that the two aliens were wearing white spacesuits and they had some kind of device in their hand that was used to translate. In an interview, Grant Cameron said that Robert Emenegger's story of an alien encounter at the Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico was a credible account and that there was evidence to back up his claims. He also said that Emenegger was a very credible witness and that the story had a lot of credibility. Wait, there's more. A few months ago, I watched a video Bart Sibrell filmed of a gentleman who was dying of cancer, a bedside testimony, bedside confession, and requested that the video be released after his passing. So Bart released it 
And the man basically said his father, a military policeman, witnessed the filming of the moon landings inside a hangar. And the reason why I wanted to contact Bob was because this individual said that Emenegger played a prominent part in the production of the film. So obviously, I had to hear from Bob Emenegger myself. And that's when I found out Bob had passed away two years earlier. So that's why I want to feature our interview once again. Apparently, he was very comfortable with our format and shared a lot of truth. I wish I could have asked him about the most recent testimony and his alleged involvement. Something tells me he would have denied it. But don't forget that that documentary, UFOs Past, Present, and Future, includes seven seconds of real footage of a UFO landing. You don't see the the craft land, but you see it coming down. And remember, the government, the Nixon administration, the Pentagon, had promised Emenegger and Sandler, Adam Sandler, not the artist, the actor, his partner on the film. They promised them to use the entire footage, but at the last minute they pulled it. But they actually gave him seven seconds with the condition that at the end of the documentary, they had to say, this may have happened or may happen in the future, but not to mention that it did happen. That was the condition. And I don't think any other radio platform has discussed this. And speaking of exopolitics, I recently posted my interview with Sonny Sito, also from 2009, and many of you wrote to me asking if I know how she is. Well, I'm happy to say that she is fine, and she will be back in early 2023. So stay tuned for the return of Sunny Sito on Veritas. That's it for me. I wanted to take this opportunity to say a few things since I hardly get a chance to talk to you directly. And to all of you, I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. In a year as difficult as this one has been, I hope you are able to find some peace and joy during this time. If you are feeling lonely, please know that you are not alone. I'm here to provide company and comfort. I'm always thinking of you. Take care of yourselves and each other. I'll see you next week with a new episode. With me is author and filmmaker Robert Emenegger and former security manager and chief of requirements for the audiovisual program at Norton Air Force Base, Paul Shartle. Gentlemen, Mr. Emenegger, how did you get involved with UFOs? Well, it was in 1973 when I was vice president at Gray Advertising, and I took time out and went to Norton Air Force Base to explore subjects for television specials related to the Defense Department. While discussing several of the subjects, UFOs came up, and Paul here told us about a film of a landing of alien crafts at uh, Holloman Air Force Base about three years earlier. What did you see, Mr. Shuttle? I saw footage of three disc-shaped crafts. One of the crafts landed and two of them went away. Why did it land? It appeared to be in trouble because it oscillated all the way down to the ground. However, it did land on three pods. A sliding door opened, a ramp was extended, and out came three aliens. <laughs> what, what did they look like? Well, they were human-sized. They had odd gray complexion and a pronounced nose. They wore tight-fitting jumpsuits, thin headdresses that appeared to be communication devices, and their hands, in their hands, they held a translator, I was told. A Holloman base commander and other Air Force officers went out to meet them. Now you actually saw these aliens on the film? Yes. This film footage sounded very, very special, and we wanted to use it as the ending of our television special. And did you? Was it in your special? 
Well, although the Pentagon had been very, very cooperative all the way, at the last minute the film was confiscated and we lost the whole finale of our show. But what I saw and heard was enough to convince me that, you know, the phenomenon of UFOs is real, very real. Mr. Shardle, what did your superior officers tell you? I was told it was theatrical footage the Air Force has purchased to make a training film. Well, that sounds plausible, doesn't it? Well, if it were a, a uh, theatrical film, why didn't I have a record of this? It was my job to keep accurate records of all audiovisual purchases. Is there any other reason that you feel this was not a theatrical film? Yes, it was too real. The people who were shooting that day were Air Force personnel. Lucky for us, the day they were shooting, they were doing an acceleration test. Yeah, well, it's too bad we couldn't get that footage from the Air Force. Gentlemen, thank you very You're much for being with us. Then to put the documentary out, and then I find out that there's eight seconds of the Holloman Air Force Base film in the film. So Bob's my friend, I phone up Bob. There's eight seconds of film in there. And he goes, well, yeah. And I said, you told me to hold the film. You told me it was sent back to the Pentagon. And he said, well, it did. And he told me this whole story about the guy going across the country in this small Datsun, taking the film back to the Pentagon. I said, but there's eight seconds of film in the documentary. And then he said the key words, he said, but it didn't show anything. And I said, oh no, he said, it's background. And I said, background? What do you mean it's background? And he said, it didn't show anything. And what it is, is you see the hills of Holloman, and you see this object, this brilliantly lit object at six o'clock in the morning coming over the hills, but it's in a distance. So it, you don't see it close up, and you don't see the alien when the alien gets out. That's the classified part. So they want you to know that Holloman happened, and they allowed them to use this the eight seconds of the film but the rest of the film, the classified part, was pulled. And now, get ready. Does the government have film footage of a UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base? Did non-human entities exit the disk and communicate with the base commander? What was so different about the appearance of these aliens as compared to those we hear about today? If you want to know the answers to these and more questions, don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Veritas Show. Welcome back to The Veritas Show. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from Grant Cameron's interview in which he goes on the record to express that Bob Ammenegger's story is potentially the biggest UFO story of all time. That was the compelling reason that convinced me to share his story with all of you tonight. But let's let Grant Cameron say it one more time. And the Robert Emenegger story, I think, is one of the best. It is potentially the best UFO story ever, uh, given all sorts of access to uh, top-secret film and uh, people and clean rooms and uh, the Holman Air Force Base story and all that kind of stuff. He did know Bob Haldeman, who was chief of staff for Nixon, and he also knew uh, Hershenson. Hershenson was public uh, relations and public affairs for 
uh, Richard Nixon, and he was in contact with Bob Ammenager almost on a daily basis while they were producing UFOs Past, Present, and Future, which is this documentary in 1975, 1974 they put it out, uh, that Ammenager and Alan Sandler put out, and they were, he was in almost in daily contact as to how the, the documentary was coming out. And so I asked Bob Ennery, I said, did Nixon, was Nixon behind this? Can't say for sure. Hershenson was in contact and he asked Bob Haldeman, he said, uh, this, this famous story about the, they had the film in their possession that where the alien lands at Haldeman Air Force Base, the aliens get out, the generals uh, greet them, they walk down the tarmac right. to Mars and they, all this sort of stuff. And uh, this is all on film and that Emmenager and Sandler had the film and that the last minute the film was pulled back to the Pentagon by, by Coleman and that they put about seven seconds of the film. They've confirmed there's seven seconds of the actual film in the documentary. So you get these, these contacts where they're being leaked this material and at the last minute the, docu- the, the film is pulled, same as 1956 when Disney is, is contacted, given all the material and at the last minute they pull all the, the, uh, the footage that they're, they're going to do. So the government does have that. Mr. Emmenegger is on our guest roster for this year, but after what you've said, I'm going to have to call him and get him sooner. Oh, he is, I say is potentially the best story there is because it, it involves it involves the White House. It involves, and, and I've confirmed, I've heard him tell the story, and I've, I've stayed at his place, and I see him every time I go to Ozark. He's at Ozark every year, and he, he couldn't care less what he was. He's very skeptical. All he believes is his story. So he's a, he's a very respectable type guy, and he basically, I've heard him tell the story 30 times, and he has never deviated from that story one iota. So Emmenegger's got some incredible stories, and I've heard him tell them so many times. He keeps telling all these stories, and just fascinating, in behind the scenes, of a guy who really was a skeptic, who, who couldn't believe, went to the Pentagon and was called to the Pentagon and was saying, you know, I couldn't believe I was there. Like, these people are all crazy. Like, they're all talking about that. Like, this thing's for real. Are these people nuts? He, he just didn't believe it. And he, he couldn't believe there's Coleman and colonels and people, generals talking about this as if it was real. And he thought that these people are all nuts. I mean, what, what are they talking about? I don't believe this stuff. To the uh, worldwide audience and uh, to Mr. Emmenegger, uh, Mr. Cameron just gave you the biggest commercial for the upcoming interview that I hope to have with you. Robert Emmenegger is a screenwriter and director for many documentaries, television specials, and feature films for TV syndication. He's a 1965 UCLA graduate in film and winner of numerous first place awards and gold medals in domestic and foreign film festivals. He is the producer and director of 10 original science fiction feature films and four two-hour documentaries for TV, Laboratory, Sci-Factor, Captive, and Time Warp. Other samples of Emmenegger's work from Who's Who in Entertainment include The Day the Silence Came, Hypnosis and Beyond, Is Everyone Happy But Me, and Death, The Ultimate Mystery. He received a Golden Globe nomination for his film UFOs Past, Present, and Future. He directed live musicals starring Carl Burnett, music for a dozen pop single records on Capitol, Mercury, and other labels, album on ABC Music for TV series Landslink, songs recorded by Kenny Rogers, Glenn Yarbrough, and others, score films and TV spots. And to the listener audience, to most of you, This will probably be the first time you will hear Bob Emmenegger share his story. Ladies and gentlemen, what you are about to hear 
is not, I repeat, is not science fiction. Hello, Mr. Emanagra, and welcome to The Veritas Show. How are you? Well, hello, and I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. Uh, Bob, I have to be very honest with you. I have heard pieces of the Holloman Air Force Base landing, but nothing concrete. It's as if this story was left somewhat under the radar. It wasn't until Grant Cameron was on this show a few weeks ago that he started talking about you. He didn't get into the story, but he did say we have, we had to have you. I extended an invitation on the air, and here you are. So I thank you once again for accepting. I also found out that many in the audience also don't know about the story. And in preparation for this show, you and I were discussing the title of the show, and you came up with the UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base. The Department of Defense now accepts UFOs as a reality. The latter yeah. portion of the story seems to carry some information we've never heard before, especially from the military. But before we proceed with the, the new revelations, Bob, I want to give those listeners who are not aware of this story, as I said, I was one of them. Why don't we start where you feel it's more appropriate? Sure. Well, I'd have, I'll make it very brief. Uh, at the time that I got involved in this, I was the VP creative director of Gray Advertising out on the West Coast. And uh, somebody I knew, well, at that time also I got a letter I did get a letter from uh, Nixon uh, asking for uh, suggestions for people who would be good for his staff and good for the country. And that was just because I, I think it was probably because of Bob Halderman, who I knew and uh, who was, you know, working with Nixon at the time. So maybe it wasn't unusual that he would, they would send out letters like this. Uh, I think I sent a copy of it to, to Grant so that he could sort of get that background that I never really talked about before. Anyway, um, I was uh, I was asked to be a part of the re-election committee, and I met with the, the staff out on the West Coast. And uh, be, be, I would say I'm maybe jumping around a little bit. That's okay. I, I had I had contacts with Bill Carruthers, who was his media director, and um, in fact, I was in the middle of a when I accepted to work on the re-election. I was in the middle of a presentation to the Bank of America board up in San Francisco, and and it was being broadcast down to Southern California because Bank of America was one of the clients that I worked with. And this is just sort of a side issue, which was kind of funny that we were in this huge room meeting and somebody and the secretary knocked on the two large doors at the end of the room. And they, uh, the, the woman entered, the secretary went over and talked to the head of our office named Bob Humphreys and whispered in his ear. And then he Humphrey said, uh, by the way, Bob, the White House is on the phone. So I got up and left with all eyes watching me as I went out and took the call. And it was really from Bill Carruthers. And it was because they said it was the White House, everybody was, you know, thinking, oh, my God. But he just simply said to me, hey, Bob, do you know any good cameramen? You know, we're trying to work on something like that. And I thought, oh, my God, that's not very important news. But <laughs> so when I went back into the room, of course, everybody's watching. And I didn't say anything about it because... What do I want to say? Oh, my friend wants to know about, you know, using the White House is always something that gets everybody's ears. Sure. So um, 
about that time, also, uh, I, my partner, Alan Sandler, who's now retired out in Ashland, Oregon, uh, he asked me to write a, a, a drug program, a drug film for the Navy that they seemed to have to, for the submarine guys to identify whether they had an alcohol pro- program problem or not. So that was my first contact with anything that had to do with the military, at least at this, at this issue. And then we worked on a NASA space shuttle promo to justify the two cents it costs every citizen to run the shuttle. I don't remember if that ever went on the air or not. But anyway, then Alan said, uh, let's go out to Norton Air Force Base. There's something I think that we could probably develop a program that would put DOD in a, in a better light. Which, and I was all up for that. Uh, so we went to Norton Air Force Base. We didn't sign in, which is what happened all the way through our what we were doing, and met with uh, the heads of DAVA. And I don't know if DAVA means anything. The Defense Audiovisual Agency. That's where all the film depository and uh, the all films go through uh, Norton at that time. So we started shuffling through projects that seemed to be very interesting. The Navy uh was had developed three dimensional moving holography uh the army had a r and d in Maryland where a young a young guy a scientist was sitting at a computer no sitting quite across the room in a, from a computer thinking and the computer would spell out the word that he was thinking. So I think that was probably something to do with you know, an additional aid to those pilots. You know, they have all kinds of things strapped to them, something on their shoulder that tells them about too left, too much right. Bob, and this was what yeah. year? What year are we referring to here? This is all in the seventy-one, seventy-two. So that technology was there in nineteen seventy-one, seventy-two. Yeah, there were okay. many things that, do. and I was exposed to and. A lot of uh, laser work. In fact, maybe we, there isn't time to go into those, but they were interesting. I was wandering around Wright-Patterson, uh, unguarded, r- wandered into a room where there was a huge jet engine and some scientists, and they were developing 100,000 watts of electricity through the rear jet with a collector. And, you know, I asked, you know, what, what's this for? Uh and I assumed that it was really to, for laser cannons. I was later found out that they had experimented with laser cannons, but the quote, what happened was they would burn a hole in the enemy airplane, but would that would, it would, it would not explode. So they put it aside and used that energy for something else. I think it was used on the, the B-2, as a matter of fact. And we won't go into that. So uh, we were exposed to all of these programs, including a dog program, which wouldn't be very much interest to you guys, but they were training shepherds uh, to um, do reconnaissance work and guarding. They had little receptors they put on their around their necks so that they could sneak into an enemy line and pick up information. It was all very interesting. Um, Bob, were you in the military or related to the military before this happened? I was uh, Air Force Reserve, 
and activated for a very short time. As a matter of fact, I joined the Air Force Reserve along with my friend Bruce Hershenson, who became an aide to Nixon later. So I knew him all through this period. And uh, I was stationed at Norton Air Force Base. There was no relationship between why we went out to Norton and the fact that I may have been stationed there, because I wasn't even interested in, I didn't even think of UFOs at that time. Okay. So um, we were also involved with the Dolphin Research Program, which is all Navy, where they were training dolphins to determine different metals. I hate to say why, but you know, that they would ask them, the dolphin to go up and touch something that was made of iron and something that was made of copper, whatever they, and they were also training them to retrieve bombs. They had a little thing that they put on them to go down and snap on a bomb and pull it back up. I don't know if anybody knows about those things or even you may care. Not I've, I've, oh, absolutely. We've heard about that. That's very interesting. I later on, uh, and I'll tell you about it later, uh, we did a, um, some, how do you call it, some work for the Navy intelligence gathering by going out on a, a dolphin hunt. Uh, they And we made a fake film. I'm jumping way ahead of the story, but, and we ended up doing a fake film, if you call it, to watch the uh, this Russian defector, all the hand gestures he was doing and all. And then Alan, because of his connections in the Soviet Union, um, asked them to do a educational film on dolphins. Well, the, that was just a cover. So as soon as we saw those films, the Navy guys were happy to know whether this defector was telling the truth or not. This is a little bit aside from what we finally ended up doing, but I just wanted you to know that there were other avenues that we were exploring, including even uh, pulling up the Merrimack with the Navy just as a, an incident. But then Alan and I were taken into a clean room out at Norton Air Force Base. I, mean, I don't know if you know what a clean room is. It's no bugging. No bugs, no cameras. Right. And the the reason, too, is that particular studio was used by the CIA for training films. So it was, you know, pretty isolated. So we sat down with Paul Shardle, who was head of security out there. And he said, what would you think if we told you there was a landing at Holloman Air Force Base of an alien craft and it, it had, and there's film of it? To tell you the truth, when I heard that, I just kind of thought, what? Would you say that again? Because I didn't think about UFOs one way or another. My wife, you know, always read the tabloids, and you know what they're full of. Sure. I had an alien's baby and <laughs> little green monsters. And I used to laugh at her and say, oh, why do you read that crap? Then here it is, move forward to about 1972 or whenever it was, and I'm hearing something that took me a while to to adjust to. So he said, well, Shartle said to us, well, you you proceed with your project, the other projects, but if you're interested in the UFO uh, story, go talk to Captain, I don't remember who he was, and he'll make a, an agreement or a, arrangements with the Pentagon so you can begin your, your, your search. But he did say, bury it under all those other projects, the ones I just mentioned to you earlier, right, you know. Right. Because that sends up a red flag to uh, within the 
DOD. So uh, off we went. We uh, arrived at the Pentagon. My wife used to say, the Bobsy twins go to the Pentagon. So that, you know, what the heck. She took it lightly. Uh, I remember we did not sign in. I think that's called plausible denial. I was going to ask you, why is it that you didn't sign in any time you went to the Pentagon or to any military officers? I cannot t- I, I, I really can't answer that other than uh, we had kind of carte blanche. Turn, uh, later on, I'll tell you why people cooperated. It puzzled me a little bit. I thought it was great. You know, it's like, here are two young men just waltzing into the Pentagon. <laughs> and we were waylaid by, uh, I guess it was the the Pentagon press in a small, narrow room with, oh, there must have been three or four uh, guys in just dark suits. They weren't military. And one sitting behind a desk started saying to us, we're very concerned about you getting into this UFO business because what happens is if you start uncovering things, the 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 public begins to phone in to the Pentagon, and that clogs up our lines. And, I, you know, the, the room was sort of like had fluorescent lights, and I kind of, under fluorescent lights and this guy, you know, yelling, I began to think, maybe I'm just going to die in this room or something. <laughs> it was, that, I mean, I really felt that way. Then Alan, who's much set more savvy, said, look, you guys, look, we were invited here as the guests, as guests. And they said, well, yeah, that's all right, but just remember, don't talk too much about the UFO thing. Well, I don't think they even said that. It's just, okay, everything's fine. Next thing I, we found ourselves, there was somebody in between who was, if I can remember his name, and it may not be important, uh, he was um, a Pentagon press guy, I think, although we never dealt with him. We went right up to Colonel Coleman's office, who was Pentagon spokesman, Air Force, and stood out in the hall while we introduced ourselves and met him. And he said to us, the same old riot act, uh, you know, if you come across something that would be dangerous to our national security, or if you saw things and talked about them that you weren't supposed to, he said, you know, you, you can be arrested and put in jail. And, right. And, I, yeah, and the whole thing. Then we entered Coleman's office, sat down, and he began, he said, look, when uh, years ago, when I was piloting a seven-man crew over Alabama in a B-25, he was a very good pilot, by the way. He was no question about that. He said, I pursued a UFO, a disc, over Alabama, and I could see we could see the vortex of dust flying up on either side of it. And he said he put the B-25 up to 250 knots, which is not very fast by today's standards. Right or 350, and he said I, he couldn't catch it, and it went up behind some trees, and he said that was the last we saw of it. He reported it. Uh, he reported what he saw in, to Project Blue Book, but it was never in any of the records. And the reason probably is here's Coleman is the one had who had to present the findings of Project Blue Book to the To press. the media, right. Yeah, to the media, so he knew. I mean, obviously he knew. He had a first-hand experience. So that goes to so show you did. that Project Blue Book never released anything of significance. 
Well, they had 1,200 cases, maybe 12,000. I don't know. It was, it was a huge number that they investigated. But to say that they never released anything of any significance, I thought they did. You know, and at least that's what we concentrated on. Well, anyway, in Coleman's office, he finally said, I know someone that would be uh, of help to you. So he got on the phone and called George Weinbrenner. George Weinbrenner turns out to be the director of foreign technology, the spy center for the Airbus. I'm sure you've heard of foreign technology. Sure, Corso and, and, and yes. Yeah, Corso had a very distant relationship with him, frankly, I found. Anyway, so we went over to the bunker in Wright-Patterson. As a matter of fact, how did I go from... What, wasn't Coleman wasn't Coleman say talking about MIGs and showed you the yeah. book from no, J. That, Allen Hynek? Was that after? No, that no, that was that wasn't Coleman. That was uh, George Weinbrenner. Weinbrenner. Okay, sorry. So we started. We went down the hall, which is underground with cameras everywhere, and I went up to uh, Weinbrenner's office door, went in, and I walked right up to him. You know my sort of my legs right against his desk, <clears throat> said, what about the landing of a, an alien craft at Holloman Air Force Base in the 70s that was filmed? And he, you know, he didn't change a beat. It was as if I said, nice weather we've got out here. <laughs> and then he said, well, you know, the Soviets know so much about us because we're a very open society. He said, we have to go to the air shows and get information about in that way, and he said, "Well, the, the Israelis though did capture a MiG for us, so we could back engineer that and find out what they're doing." And he drew, and he went to the blackboard, and he drew a, a picture of a MiG, twenty-five or twenty-six, which I thought was kind of fascinating. And but I, you know, I thought, why he never answered my question. The next thing he started on was, you know, the Soviets are ahead of us in weather alteration. He said, and uh, we need some to do some catching up on that. And he said, for instance, I've got the best, some of the best scientists working on counter strategies. So I sat down and he plopped in my lap a book that he pulled off his shelf. And the book opening cover said, to my good friend, uh, Dr. Alan Hynek. No, no, it was to my friend, George Weinbrenner, from Dr. Alan Hynek, and the book was all about UFOs. So without ever saying a word out loud, I, he knew what I was talking about, but anybody listening probably wouldn't know what, what's going on. It was sort of like a Kafka play. Right. Asking a question and getting this all these other answers that weren't even asked. Did you get it? George, did, did you know what he was attempting to do? Well, he was... Tempting. Uh, he wasn't tempting. It was more than that. He was telling us, "I understand what you're do what you're doing." Right. But did not say very much, except he said, "Well, you know, they they say that we down in the basement here, in one a special room, we have uh, three little green bodies, uh, you know, uh, that are frozen." And he kind of laughed about that, and I thought, "Hmm, I'm <laughs> funny you'd bring that up." Everybody wonders if you've got it down there. But he did it in such a way, it was like the best offense or a defense is an offense. Right. I didn't question him about that because I'd heard little stories like that. 
And then he said, told us that he said, I had a Mexican officer uh, working for me. And he used to tell all kinds of stories. And, you know, you don't know what he's going to come up with. I think he may even write a book. And I, he didn't say who it was. But the following day, Helen and I got a phone call from Hector Quintanilla, Colonel Hector Quintanilla, who was head of Project Blue Books during a certain period. And his line was, well, well, can I help you? What can we do? Well, it wasn't long after that that we met Bob Friend, Colonel Friend, who was uh, head of Project Blue Book, definitely around the 60s. And and then Alan Hynek had heard about it and came in into the fold also. And Alan and I decided after, I'll go back to uh, the studio, for instance. Before we began any of this, oh, no, no, it, when, I'm sorry, we already agreed to do a UFO thing but back at the studio, um, I had we had people coming out of the woodwork, uh, you know, like Stanton Freeman. I'm sure everybody knows who he is. Of course. And Stanton wanted to be involved. And we, when I said this at a meeting at the X conference. I, I, I maybe I shouldn't have because I really find him a wonderful guy, just a neat guy. But he did write a little note saying, you know, I should be involved with the thing. After all, I, Mr. Charisma of the UFO field or some, world. And I thought that was such an odd comment to add, you know, blowing your own horn in such a funny way. Anyway, Stanton had a, do, a Russian document that we um, we took from him to send back to Wright-Patterson so they could translate it. It was all in Russian. And we agreed with Stanton that we would give him a copy of the translation. So a courier, I don't know if they hand carried it or sent it, went back there. And after a few days, uh, the translated version came back and we gave a copy to Stanton. And he seemed happy about it. But Alan and I both were new to what the UFO field is like. And we met a few people who told us such stories, you know, that finally we decided that we would not use anyone who wasn't associated with DOD. So we stuck to Air Force Blue Book guys, uh, Pentagon spokesman, Al Chop. I, I don't know if you know who Al Chop is. No. He he was a spokesman for, for NASA, but he was the one who was handling... In 1952, when there was a flight over Washington, D.C., and President Truman said, what the hell is going on? He was the, the man, the media guy who handled that. Uh, and he, we, we took that case, which I thought was very interesting, and he uh, handled it from a video, you know, visual point of view, how the things flew over. And he said, and we showed the radar screen in which he said you could see them appear on the radar screen. In other words, we showed this. It isn't him just telling a story to us. He sort of demonstrated it. And that um, the, the they decided to send up some interceptors. And he said, and by the way, he said these things were going 7,000 miles an hour across the screen. That's pretty fast. Wow. 
At that time, that was fast. Even and, today, uh, it's fast. Yeah, it is. So, so they were tracking them. So two, two I don't know, the F, F-84s, I'm not sure which plane it was at the moment. I remember he, he launched two of them to uh, intercept them. So the guys are flying around, and he said on the radar, you could see our planes taking off. And as soon as they were airborne, the the foreign traffic, all seven just went and disappeared from the radar scope. And he said he watched the guys call down and said, look, we're, we don't see anything up here. We're coming back to base because we're not finding anything. So as soon as they landed, all the traffic appeared on the scope again. And there they were. It happened two nights in a row. And that's when Truman said, what the hell is going on over the White House? They're intruding on sacred airspace. In 1952. Yeah, and see, the, the reason we included it, we decided, let's not talk about the thousands of cases you solved. Because wouldn't you do that too? It's like, well, that's all very interesting, but let's uh, talk about the ones that were unresolved. So that's what we stuck to. And Bob, let's not forget that recently declassified document from the Department of Defense and the Ministry of Defense in, in the UK state that since the 50s, the United States, I believe, also had orders to shoot down UFOs. So I presume those jets that were scrambled had intentions of shooting down. Am I right? I never heard that. I, I've, uh, you mean, people can have made up all kinds of stories, but... Uh, I think they have attempted to. I don't know if they were ordered to. Yeah, maybe certainly before that period, because never did I hear them mention that we had fired on any alien crafts. So take it for whatever it's worth. I'm I'm familiar with you know all of these recent reports that people are have come out with, but I didn't run into that at all. There were more interesting and more bizarre things than that. As a matter of fact, I may be going too far back for you. One of the early people I met was Dan McGovern, who was on Project Twinkle. He was head of that. That was in 19, it was in the 40s, in which they saw these balls or or lights coming up out of the sky, making a right turn, and then dashing off. And it was a top secret project to photograph them. And he said he spent two years with the expensive German cameras and fast 3,000 USA ASA uh, film that was developed by Kodak to try and catch them. He said after two years, they never they could see them, but they never could capture them on film. I mean, that's past history, but and we never included Dan McGovern or Project Twinkle in our story, but it was sort of an interesting thing anyway. So let's see, back to wherever we were. Holler right there. We have to take a break. And I just laughed when I heard Project Twinkle and the Light Orbs. This reminds me of Twinkle and Twinkle Little Star. Very appropriate project name. Let's take a quick break. We're here with Bob Ammenegger. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere.
Yeah, welcome back to the Veritas show. And I'm here with Bob Ammenerger talking about the UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base. Bob, mm, please proceed. Uh, well, uh, we began our, our project, as I said. We went back to uh, Alan's studio. At that time, we later on, we jointly owned a television studio or film studio. But back then, we were at his offices because I was still with gray advertising, just taking time off for this project. And sort of an interesting thing, uh, down from Stanford Research, Hal Putoff came down, and Targ, are you, do you know who these two Russell, people are? Russell Targ and uh, Hal yeah. Putoff, sure. Yeah. And they were really curious, they had learned through Jacques Vallée that we were doing this project. And I got to know them at that time. And as a matter of fact, I still talk to put off often and he's always wanting to know when they're going to tell us about the landing at Holloman and uh, like everybody asks sure and and then I this is a side issue but I sort of lost contact with put off for 10 years at although we talked an awful lot before that and then we got back together 10 years later which I mean was in the 80s and uh he told me that he was asked not to really communicate with too many people because he had, as you know, headed the remote viewing for the CIA. Or did you know that? I did not know that, no. Yeah, so that was his assignment. He spent several years getting the best uh, sensitives and under the uh, patronage of the CIA to remote view and some of the some of them are pretty remarkable what he came up. I have some declassified examples now, but they were spying on the Soviets. At that time there was only the Soviets that anybody cared about one way or another. And one of them, I think his name is Pat Price, was tuned in on a Soviet R and D base somewhere in the Soviet Union and drew a picture of the the buildings and all. But also he added, at the bottom, he, he saw a large crane on uh, tracks. So when, it, when that came back, Putoff said that, you know, they said, wait a minute, you know, we know what this looks like from, but I, there are no, there's no big crane out in front with it, tracks. But to make sure, they sent up the spy satellite, and there it was, sitting exactly where this Pat Price had visualized it. So that that always gave the the program a little boost. There are a lot of things that are would be fun to talk about, but uh, on issues like that. But that isn't why we're we're talking about UFOs right now. So <clears throat> someday we'll jump back to the other subjects. So they were the jets were scrambled. They came back. The objects disappear when they were scrambled. When they uh, took off, then when they landed, they reappeared. Does that mean they? left at a high speed, or they just uh, disappeared they just to another dimension? Another, I, think, uh, I think as uh, Jacques Vallée, which I got to know pretty well, he believes, and I and seems to confirm it, that they seem to disappear into another dimension. Exactly. And I don't mean woo-woo-woo, but I mean the next one up, maybe four. And uh, Heineck talked about when things were pulled out like that, that you could almost hear molecules clapping together where they pulled out of our uh, atmosphere. 
They vibrate at a different frequency, and that's how they disappear. Yeah, and it's like uh, I, there's a lot of things that were demonstrated, even with put-off in China, that we have a few, very few people who are sensitive enough to almost break the, the barrier of matter, uh, dematerializing and re-materializing re, uh, objects from one room to another, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Anyway, back to uh, Chop and Heineck and Friend. <clears throat> I suppose one of the, I thought the, the landing in Socorro, New Mexico was quite stunning. I'm sure everybody knows about it, but maybe they don't. Maybe they, they don't, so do you want to talk about that? Well, in the 60s, Lana Zamora, who is a sheriff down in Socorro, New Mexico, was on his usual route and they were driving around and he saw a car that looked like it was speeding. So he followed it up a gravel road, up a hill and stopped and didn't know where it went. But he looked down, not far from him, I'd say, what, 500 feet? I'm guessing. And he saw, a, it looked like a craft, a disc sitting there. And he noticed that two pair of legs came down from in, under it or inside of it and at the time they either sensed him and I mean he freaked out he called in which we had in our film headquarters said I'm, I'm checking on an overturned car and I'll be out of my vehicle and all of a sudden he screamed back to the microphone and said and watched as that craft lifted up with a roar um flames under it lifted up about 20 feet he said then becomes became silent and went screaming off to the uh, the west or whatever direction is there a recording of that conversation bob well i, I re, you know it it, it was not re, it wasn't recorded but i re, re reenacted it, it right with lonnie at that very spot the air force and the army was there very quickly and the air force and they gathered up whatever evidence they could find. And there was, um, it looked like the, they wanted to know what kind of propellant was used. So they analyzed and said, it's not propellant. It's more like fission or fusion. He said rocks were, there was, uh, you could see smoldering, but there wasn't any fire. And the rocks were either hard or hardened. And they measured the distance between the, uh, pod marks and they even measured the depth of the footprints and estimated things like how much the craft weighed and that the beings were by our standards maybe 140 pounds or you know that and they were oval shaped not like our little footprints so it went it went down in the hist in the books of saying you know unidentified and there was even an emblem on the side of the craft, which Lanny drew it, and it was a triangle pointing up. And he was, you know, he was obviously scared to death. And I don't, I maybe he's talked about it since or before, but at least we were able to get it down in the film. And then some of the other ones that are more interesting, maybe. Uh, Bob Friend was, I really love the guy. He's still alive and he lives out in the West Coast, still involved in missiles 
which was his background. A lot of people say, oh, the, you know, those Air Force Blue Book guys, they were just, uh, you know, hired hands. They didn't know what they were doing. Well, it turns out that Friend was an acknowledged physicist who had worked with OSI. Had, he's a, you know, a brilliant man. So people are always trying to knock that the Blue Book people didn't know what they were doing. or It's absolutely not true. Anyway, Friend had an incident that he told us about that I thought was fascinating. <clears throat> Apparently, the head of the CIA back in the 60s, I don't know, would make Lundahl? No, no. Who would that have been? His name, I should, you know, I'm not a UFO speaker type of thing. I, I understand. So I, um, anyway, so he was curious about a woman who lived in Upper Maine, who, her name, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter who it is. Um, she was, Swan was her name. It's not the same Swan that worked for the remote viewing. It's a woman named Swan. It's, it's not Ingo Swan. No, Ingo, no, this was a woman. I don't know what her right. first name was, last name was Swan. And so uh, he sent, the CIA Navy guy, sent two of his commanders up to in, interrogate her because he was curious. I mean, listen, believe me, every branch of the government, whether they say so or not, are very interested in all of this. Uh, she uh, she sat down and they asked him asked her questions that they said were beyond her knowledge to be able to answer, and she quote said with seeming telepathic help from some alien or or craft or whatever it was answered the questions. And they were very impressed. Then she, Swan turned to one of the Navy guys. I think it was. His name was uh, Larson, and said that they are willing to answer questions through you. And it's sort of like, me? Well, I, I wasn't present to know how it went, but she told him to relax, to open his mind. And his partner, the other Navy guy, was intrigued with all of this, began to ask him questions, and he seemed to be communicating with this other dimension or this alien or whatever it was. Well, uh, that word went back to Washington. You know what kind of questions they were talking about? Yeah, I know, I know the questions that were finally asked. Uh, so there was a meeting in a building which is in Washington, D.C., which Bob Friend took us to to tell us the Air Force's involvement. The building is was used by naval intelligence photographic the bottom floors were just a parking lot but as you went up to about the fourth floor or so the navy was doing intelligence work there so bob friend walks through the empty building and tells us that he had heard that there was a eu some sort of a organization of aliens of other planets who were interested in Earth, and that was their present project. With all that, remember, Bob Friend is no, does not make things up, if you knew who he was. He was head of Project Blue Book toward the last. Sure. Um, we went into a room that I could see. It was a corner room. And uh, there were present were uh, Art Lundahl, CIA. I tried to get him to be on camera 
He said, you don't understand. He said, I'm still on duty, and that that would be embarrassing, and we just don't do it. So I had Bob Friend tell the story. Um, there was two the two Navy commanders, a couple Air Force, uh, Art Lundahl from the CIA, and they asked, I think his name was Larkin, if he would go into a trance and communicate with whoever these beings are. So he went into a, a trance. The way he described it, his Adam's apple began moving up and down like that, bouncing up and down. And the others in the room asked him to ask questions. I mean, the questions to me sounded as dumb as you can get. Uh, do you favor any nation? The answer was no. It's a good question. Do you, do you favor any religious group? like Muslims or Christians are all, said, no. Will there be a third world war? They said, no. And they said, can, then they said, can we see your craft? And the answer was, yes. Go to the far window and you, you will get your answer. So apparently everybody got up. And, and you know, I remember I'm telling this through Bob's friend, and we went to a window that faced the White House because you could see it out, outside. He said they all looked, went to the window and saw this craft or whatever it was. And the Navy guys called for radar confirmation. <laughs> Sounds like I'm kidding, but the, the word came back that that quadrant of the sky was blanked out on radar at the time. So it must have been huge. Well, I, well, I, I don't know about its size, but the fact that if they can control our radar and be not even working, the radar not even working at that time, that means they have some ability beyond us. So that was a friend went to his general and said, look, I'd really like to follow up on this. And he was told, no, don't bother. Uh, we'll handle it from here on out. So friend was never able to figure out any conclusion to it. But that had never been told publicly, the one other thing I'm just telling you now. It was the first time and they, they allowed us to tell it. And I use that as an example of if the Air Force and the Navy and the CIA is all trying to cover up something, like we don't want people to talk about it, I don't you think that would be rather an embarrassing thing to put out there for the public, admitting that they went as far as trying to communicate with these aliens? I thought so. I thought that was a good example of their openness, like Absolutely. a lot of the things that they talked about. Absolutely. And we talk on this show a lot about the possibility of this closure, which I seem to be more pessimistic about just because I don't think anybody who's in control would like to relinquish control. But not only that, I think the only way to do this is by giving immunity to those people who have been involved so far. I know how exopoliticians really feel. And uh, when I spoke back at that conference, I felt I was the Lone Ranger because I, I believed that you're not going to get the Senate or Congress or anyone to acknowledge it or even investigate it because this was done during um, Ford's time. Uh, there was an incident in his area of, of which a craft landed, well, very well described, and he demanded an, uh, a, an, an investigation. And Quintanella and... and uh, Heineck presented all the evidence to them. 
they were satisfied with whatever the answer was, and it was over. Nobody, you know, no one picked up the string and said, wait a minute, we better look into this. I don't believe that you're ever going to get Congress as much as you, the exo politicians believe or hope will ever do anything. And why don't, and the business about presidents, don't they know? I, I have a feeling a lot of them have been excluded from any information, but they know the information I'm telling you right now. So I would think that they would be very interested in following up. But as a matter of fact, I don't know if Grant told you, on the 6th, is it, is, I don't know what the day the 6th is. On Monday, I put a question to Bush Sr., who's going to be here. I had to write it down. You know, they don't like things as surprise questions. But I asked him, I said, with your association, past association with the CIA, and it is surmised that you, of all the recent presidents, that you would be the most informed on the subject. And the question is, what do you say to that? So I'm anxious to find out if something might, ha- might happen along those lines. Wasn't he the one who told Carter, sorry, you don't have the need to know when he was director of the CIA, secretary of the CIA? It probably was. I, I have not yet any president. I haven't met any of them. The only one I knew was Nixon or worked with that knew anything, you know, they were, and the point I got from the military was they don't have a need to know. They're going to be four-year guys, maybe eight, except for someone like Bush, the senior. There is no reason for them to know, they said. Now, does that mean that they know something they don't want to tell the president? I don't know. I'm just telling you, you know, from my point of view. Now, let me, I can go on with some of the other Incidents. By the way, are you going to take a short break? You, you. I'll let you know. I'll let. We did take a a break seventeen minutes ago, and I'll alert you when another break comes in. But let's go back to uh, Holloman. Let's go back uh, to when you were contacted and you were with Weinbrenner. Take us from there. Well, uh, Weinbrenner would not even acknowledge anything I was saying. But with a wink, he seemed to know what I was talking about. That's what I found out about guys like him who are, you know, the, they work with the spooks. They're, they're very much in bed with the CIA. So what you're telling us, Bob, I don't mean to interrupt you, but his office was obviously bugged, and that's why he was referring to MIGS. That's why he opened the book that uh, Dr. Hynek dedicated to him without saying anything. So he was let's pretend he was just giving you some hand gestures about what you were referring to, but he was talking about MIGS so that if anybody's listening, they'll know, or they will think he's not talking about what you were interested in. Am I right? Well, I, it was it was very puzzling. I often refer to it as being like in a Kafka play. Right. I ask one question and it gets off onto another subject, which I didn't even ask about. And I thought, all this interesting information, I thought it was very interesting. But I can't, I, I don't assume he, it, it, that... He was bugged, but yet he is in the intelligence business, Air Force. They're the spy center of the Air Force, probably of everything else, too. So maybe they monitor what he's saying on the phone or in the room. I I don't know. He never said anything. But it it led me to believe that uh, he wouldn't have told me about his Mexican officer or a few other things or show me that he knew Heineck and had worked with him unless 
He wanted us to know, kind of like with a wink, right. I know what you're talking about. As a matter of fact, Colonel Coleman at the beginning said he can, he can be of more of help to you than anyone else when he made the phone call, when Coleman called Weinbrenner. So back to, I don't know where we were. Uh, you were at the Weinbrenner's office. Well, but let's move forward to wh- why I, <clears throat> I asked about Holloman. How it came about, Chardle knew a guy that was from foreign technology who was stationed at Holloman, who apprised him either through email or letters or phone calls that the landing had taken place. I mean, I wouldn't have known that. And it was described to him. It's somewhere in the records, but he, he was told, I was told that the, la- the craft landed. It was wobbled down that the commander of the base went out with other the, with the uh, fire department and a couple others to meet this craft which opened the door it's uh, it dropped down and uh, a couple i guess people or whatever they were and but just be, be, before we before that group went to meet them, did we take any hostile posture or any defensive posture about a foreign craft landing? No, no, landing? no. We, we, I, it, the thing that I can't figure out is when they saw this craft coming down. I think they continue in, a, in our own way, warning them, warning them, and somehow they saw what the shapes of these crafts were and allowed. There were three. I was told the two. Two of them did not land. One of them did land, and that's it was either in trouble or came down. And why, how we'd acknowledge them, I have no idea. That was never clear to me. But I went to find out later, so I'll go ahead with what I was told. Okay. <clears throat> they said that this Alfonso Lorenzo was assigned to them from foreign technology to take care of their needs, whatever the needs are. One of them was holding sort of a translator in his hand, which looked like a caduceus. One of the extraterrestrials. Yeah, yes. And they, we asked them if they would help us identify a radio signal, which I guess they played it for them or, or turned them into it, turned them to it. And they said, we don't know who it is. It, it isn't ours. As far as I know, that was just one of the few comments that were made then i then i was told they stayed for a short time in uh, the, the barrack which is not there anymore and by the way the base was closed down for this incident sounds People like uh, the the uh the eisenhower event where they closed allegedly closed the air force base for a few yeah, days I, yeah that's that's what happened and then the craft was taken down to the end of Mars Avenue. I was told, you know, all these little bits of details. So let's go back to Alan and I saying, we had, by the way, now we have a new contact. He is a Major Leo Verana from the Navy. He was a Navy major. So all the branches were involved, by the way. We'd get passed around. And he was our contact, and he told, <clears throat> we told him we wanted to go down and film in Holloman. Holloman. And he, um, Alan is very 
impatient about everything. He got the commander of foreign technology, uh, the commander of Holloman, on the phone and said, "You know, we're doing a project, and we'd like to come down and film at your base if that you can do that." And he said, "You want to do what?" <laughs> and he said, "So he said, you know, like forget it." So Alan called Leo Verana, and he explained what happened. He said, "Oh, well, look." Give me 10 minutes and then call him back. We waited and finally Alan called back and the guy said, oh, well, come on down. <laughs> Change the tune. Oh, boy, yeah. Let's... What I found is that everyone was cooperating with this. I mean, uh, here I am new to the UFO field. So as a matter of fact, I asked, I'm, gonna, I'm jumping around just before we go, I go down to Holloman, but I asked uh Bill Coleman, Colonel Coleman, maybe six months ago I asked him, because I still talk to those guys. I said, why did you, why were you talking to us? He says, because the Secretary of the Air Force said to do it. So that was kind of, well, maybe that's why they talked to us, including every time we'd meet with a researcher, he was said, told to cooperate with us and talk, which is, you know, it's certainly a, pleasurable thing to have happen to you. Bob, before we proceed with this, and we have to take another break, but can you please describe what Mr. Shardle saw when the craft landed and the three being, the beings emerged? And I presume there was footage taken from this meeting, right? Yes, there was three cameras. There was a ground camera. There was one in, in a helicopter. And uh, I guess there must have been a ground one, a handheld. I'm not sure what it was because I didn't know. So you believe that the beings were filmed? Yes, I do. Can I you, mean, just, can you I describe them? I believe it. Pardon? Can you describe the beings according to what Mr. Shardle said? Well, this is through a translator. I mean, the thing is that I had an artist that I've always worked with who does storyboards draw the interpretation that Shardle said and what I believed. And I, I'm sorry that in the book they look more like uh, comic book drawings to me, but he... He had no knowledge, and we didn't oversee him. This is for the book. Sure. He said they were about a little less than five feet high. They had sort of a rope-like design around their head with wide-apart eyes and practically no nose and mouth. No, no, they had a large nose. Large nose, right. They look, they look like people from Babylonia. Mm -hmm. But yet, Alan, or Heineck, not Heineck, uh, Shardle saw them later, and I'll tell you why he had to. Because uh, one of the one of the senators, Dodd, heard us talking about on a program later. Dodd, Christopher Dodd. Yes, heard that one of his constituents called him and said, "I want to know about this under the Freedom of Information Act. I want to see that film. I want to blah blah blah." So Dodd called out to the West Coast to the Holloman, and that oh not. No, I'm sorry, to uh, Norton. And uh, it was a new crew, and they had no idea what we were talking about. But, but Shardle then decided to look at the film again, and he said that he felt, instead of it being a large nose like a Sumerian, it looked like something that was over their nose, like maybe for who knows, breathing or whatever. But we have to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We're talking about the description that Mr. Shardle had given. Bob Emenegger about the extraterrestrials. And this does not end here, folks. 
We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.